So reading Colossians 1, 15 to 23, and it's entitled in the NIV, The Supremacy of the Son of God. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that everything he might have, so over him everything might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you've heard and that's been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Let's just pray. Lord, we just pray again for your word that we can, um, we can ingest it, Lord, and we can, we can take it on board and, and really live by your word. We pray now for Nick as he comes to, uh, to preach and to, to share his thoughts on that passage. We just pray uh, that, you, God, that Nick will speak your words, Lord, and that we can hear you speaking through everything that he says. So we'll be with Nick this morning. Amen. I heard God speak to me in a completely different way than I've ever heard before this week. Haven't got time to tell you about that. Didn't actually make preparation for preaching any easier. I just wanted to spend time with the Lord and, uh, and work out what he was saying to me and how he was saying and how that changed my life. Because when, and you need those moments, I think. You need those moments. You need one of those moments where uh, it's not just that you understand something a little different, but you kind of see the Lord in, in that Isaiah kind of way. You need that kind of moment. Um, that paradigm shift moment where, it, where you don't, it's not just you understand a little bit more, but it's suddenly you, you see God and think, oh my goodness, uh, he is real. Oh my goodness, he is holy. Oh, oh my goodness, he, uh, he is Lord. Oh my goodness, I'm a worm. <laughs> oh my goodness, how can I stand before him? You need that kind of moment um, with the Lord. I pray that kind of moment for you. I don't know whether we're going to have it this morning. Um, I sense uh, the spirit already moving amongst us this morning. We'll see what happens today because I'm not sure I really feel adequate to the task of, uh, of preaching this passage to you. Sometimes Paul's writing is so dense that it seems to require a kind of forensic analysis. Uh, it feels like you kind of, you've got it on the autopsy bench and you're pulling it apart and you've got your scalpel out and you're dividing it and you're trying to understand it. And then as a preacher, you've got to try and put it back together again uh, into something comprehensible and then you've got to make it live, got to make it alive. It's a big calling. So sometimes preaching for Paul is like being presented with a dead alien. You think there's, there's an anatomy here I completely don't understand. 
and then you get your scalpels out and you dissect it and, and you cut it up and you think, oh, I understand that bit, I understand that bit. Oh, yeah, okay, I, I, I get to grips with this now. But then you've got to reassemble it and then you've got to bring it back to life and then you've got to make it dance. And it's just really hard, that's all I'm saying. Well, I've given a little bit of assistance. Paul has given us some assistance this morning because this is a passage that sings. This is a, a passage that dances. I'm just tempted to read those verses over and over to you again because it feels like it might be more profitable than anything I've got to say this morning. Um, because these verses are, they're a hymn. It is a kind of hymn, or at least it's kind of, you know, a purple passage and there's... there's um, and you can tell it's a hymn because it's got a kind of rhythm to it. This, these verses, the first part, verses 15 to 20. And it's got kind of unusual words, words that Paul won't, uh, doesn't always um, use. Now, that's a little bit lost on us um, in, in the English translation. But even just reading in English, I think you get, uh, you get a picture. Something else is going on here. It's not just prose, it's praise. It's not just prose, it's praise. And therefore, you, you can't treat it like uh, other passages. Some people think that Paul's um, got a hold of an early Christian hymn and he's either used it, stuck it in, or he's, or he's edited it, but I think that seems, it's possible, but it seems a bit of a strange um, conclusion. I think he's writing a hymn. I think he's just, he's just lifted into, into praise when he starts to think about Jesus, think about Christ and what he's done. And he's potentially, I think he's riffing on Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And on Proverbs 8.22, and I'll let you look that up. There isn't time to explain that. It doesn't change our understanding of the text, whether he's picked a hymn from somewhere and whether he's cut it about or whether he's pasted it in or whether he's invented it himself. It doesn't uh, affect our understanding because Paul's used it and therefore it is authoritative. But it does change um, a little bit what we do with it. Because we're going to need to respond to this with worship. Respond to this with worship. I'm going to concentrate on the first half. I really ask you, don't, you need to get your head around it, but just respond with, with worship, with, with praise to God. Just as we go along, just marvel and tell God how good he is um, in your mind. Because this is kind of like a a counter melody to the Christmas carols and the Christmas songs we're about to sing. We sang this morning, uh, unto us uh, a child is born. Um, and it's an interesting exercise. Can you fit that into the text? Can you see where that fits into the text? It's a little challenge for you. Because we're going to sing. Because this splits into two. These verses 15 to 20 splits into two. Christ is supreme over creation. And second part, Christ is supreme in salvation. And in between, we could have sung, unto us, child is born, um, the king over all creation. So we're going to try and fit those things together. We're going to sing, as it were, in, in preaching and in listening. Um, Christ is supreme over creation. Christ is supreme in salvation. Um, and he does that by becoming a child uh, this Christmas time. So let's... I'm going to move uh, quickly through it, so I don't think this is going to be long. Christ is supreme over, over creation. And I'm going to use the word Christ, just um, uh, don't pick me up on, on the technicality. Of course, the Son, 
The Son of God, God the Son, is not Christ. He is not Jesus until he is born. He is not Jesus until he is born. You understand that? Um, so uh, when the, God the Son exists before he becomes um, Jesus the man. So don't pick me up on that. I am going to mix, uh, mix that terminology up and, and just at times call him Christ. Um, or just call him Jesus. But we're going to look at Christ's nature, his inheritance, his authority, his indispensability, and his universality um, in, in salvation, sorry, in creation and salvation. So in creation, as to his nature, the Son is the image of the invisible God. The Son is the image of the invisible God. You and I, of course, are God's image. We, we display his likeness, except that we're marred by sin. So we're made in the image of God. And when Adam had a third son, Seth, he said that he was in his likeness. He was in his image. But Jesus the Christ, born as a baby, is the precise image and revelation of the invisible God. And Hebrews says the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. So even as a baby, maybe especially as a baby, born in a manger, laid in a manger, Jesus is the exact, the precise, the definitive image and revelation of what the invisible God is like. And what does he show us? Well, he shows us a God of mercy, shows us a God of initiative taking, shows us a God who takes the first step, shows us a God who's prepared to get his hands dirty, shows us a God who's prepared to come and be low and among, at the same time that he is in his divine nature, over and above. So in creation, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. His inheritance is all creation. He is the firstborn. Um, Firstborn was the family inheritor. So that's just the way it worked. I guess it still happens in royal titles, doesn't it? Um, The royal title gets gets passed down to to the firstborn. So Jesus' inheritance as the firstborn over all creation, he is going to, as it were, inherit creation. Paul says that God's made known to us the mystery of his will to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. God's plan is that all things will one day come to a unity under Jesus. That's his plan. So isn't that amazing? Even as Jesus is is born as, as a baby into a family where what's the inheritance going to be? Inheritance is going to be a, a, few, a few nails and a chisel, um, and maybe a handful of saws. He is, he is the oldest son in that family. Maybe he'll, maybe he'll inherit Joseph's tools, even as he's born as a baby into little or no inheritance. Through his obedience, his obedience unto death, God will give him the world. His inheritance is... All things. But first, 
firstborn also implies authority. He is the firstborn over creation. So in Psalm 89, God says of David, um, I'll appoint him to be my firstborn, the most exalted of the kings of the earth. So to be firstborn is to be the one with authority, the most exalted king. So Jesus is not the firstborn in creation, as if he were the first created being, as the Jehovah's Witnesses might tell you. He is the firstborn over creation. And the following verses make that clear, don't they? And what does it say? This amazing thing, verse 16, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Previously, the NIV said, for by him all things were created. The new NIV says, in him all things are created. I think that's right. All things are created in Christ. The Son of God is the bigger entity than all of creation. There is a sense in which all of creation exists um, in Christ. Everything that has been created owes its existence to Jesus. All those antelopes and buffaloes and bees and stuff. Or whether they're in heaven, angelic beings, whether they're in the heavens, clouds, birds, whether they're on earth, mountains, seas, jungles, waterfalls, all that stuff. Whether they're visible, people, trees, spiders, or invisible gases and molecules and atoms. No matter how powerful they may seem, presidents, dictators, global corporations, um, Google, Facebook, and all the rest... Angels, archangels, spiritual beings, Satan himself, all things were created in him. There is nothing and no one thing or person or being more powerful than our Jesus. How amazing. The firstborn over all creation becomes Joseph and Mary's firstborn. All things were created not only in him, all things were created through him. That's the, uh, the verses that Bill read out. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and he was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. All things were created through Jesus which gives you an interesting little exercise, doesn't it? If you go back, if you think that this is, these verses are redolent of Genesis 1, you'd be right. And if you go back to Genesis 1, which you might want to do, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Where is Jesus? Where is the Son? We see the Father, we see God, we see the Spirit explicitly hovering over the waters. Where is, where is the Son? Given that Paul insists that through Jesus all things are created, John insists through the Word, through pre incarnate Jesus, all things are created. Where's the Word? Well, I think two ways you can look at it. It could be, couldn't it, 
that the Spirit is hovering over the waters. There is God the Father, and he says, let there be light. And the Son makes it. And the Son answers that call, let there be light, and he creates the light. Or it could almost be as if, because John says Jesus is the word, it could almost be that as God says, let there be light, it's almost as if Jesus could be the very words in God's mouth. I know we're getting metaphysical, but it's worth trying to wrap your brain on one of those two things. Jesus is there at creation. Jesus is the word who is there at creation. He's either the very word itself or he's there invisibly in Genesis 1 responding to that um, voice of God which says let there be light and there is light and all things were created in him through him and for him everything was created everything so today we're getting much bigger perspective than just church and uh, and church life and, and what happens we're thinking we're thinking cosmically we're thinking Professor Brian Cox sized stuff all of it was created for him. All creation exists for Jesus. For the God, for the praise of Jesus' name. So isn't that amazing? This tiny baby, you think of, think Jesus. Even as he comes to this physical earth, in a strange way, in his divine nature, everything exists in him, in his divine nature. Even as this little baby cries and makes sounds without words because he hasn't learnt words, he is still the word of God through which everything was created. Even as he is in obscurity and unknownness, the whole of creation exists to glorify him. Yes, look puzzled. Don't turn around and say, Nick, I understand that. Yes, look puzzled. Go, wow, that's the response. Not supposed to say, I haven't got my head around that, Nick. That's not what I'm expecting you to do. I'm expecting you to turn around and say, my goodness me, what an amazing thing. What a miracle. What a thing has this Jesus, has this Jesus, has this son of God done for me? How low has he made himself? Christ is indispensable. If we doubted the meaning of Paul's words, the Son is, he says, before all things, he's before in time, he's before in importance. In him all things hold together. In him all things hold together. Even as this little child, this tiny baby, he's bound in cloths. That's what's holding him together. Even as he's sitting, even as he's carried in his mother's arms, that's what holds Jesus. Even as he is held and he is bound, he's the one who is divinely holding all things together. Isn't that amazing? All things have been created through him, in him and through him and for him. Christ is supreme, the firstborn over all creation, but he's also the firstborn over the, over the church. 
That's what Paul goes on to say. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. So Jesus is supreme over creation. He's supreme over the new creation, which is his church. And the future of these two are tied together. I don't know whether you realize that. The future of creation and the future of the new creation, the church, they're tied together. And we see that most, clo- uh, most clearly in, in Romans 8. Um, I think verse 19. Creation waits. Creation, that's the universe, waits in eager expectation for the children of God, that's the church, to be revealed, to be revealed in, in glory. For creation was subjected to frustration. In other words, it doesn't work as it should. Not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay. And brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. So there will become a, there's coming a time, isn't there? When the children of God will have freedom. Freedom from sin and will have glory. Um, and creation will be freed from its decay, its unglory, its boundedness at the same time. And all of creation then will have the freedom and glory of being working as it's supposed to do in God's new creation. So really briefly. So in terms of the these same five things apply in God's nature. Sorry, Christ's nature as head of the church is that all God's fullness dwells in him. He's not some semi-divine angel on a stepladder to God. Even as a baby, he's the God-man and all the fullness of the deity lives in him. It's right that the Magi come and they bow down. They've got the message. They understand. All God's fullness dwells in this tiny baby. His inheritance is the church. He's the firstborn from among the dead. He's the start of a new humanity. He's born again, raised uh, to new life in a new creation. And his inheritance is the church through all time. All people who have... Um, trusted in the blood of the Lamb. And he is Lord over it. It's his inheritance. So even as he is born humanly, the plan for him is to die and to be raised from dead so that you and I, when we die, can be raised from the dead. He pioneers, he paves the way. In the new creation, he has authority too. He has supremacy. He has uh, authority over his church. But he has authority over everything that is not his church for his church. Just check that you've got those three. Jesus has authority over his church. We know that. But he has authority over everything that is not his church. That's everything else for his church. This is what our Jesus is. This is what our God is. God was pleased, it says in Ephesians, uh, placed all things under his feet rather and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body. Did you know that? Jesus is king over everything for you. That should really kind of wipe away all anxiety, shouldn't it? One fell stroke. I know so often it doesn't in reality, but it should, shouldn't it? Jesus is king over all things for you. Surely I will be with you always to the very end of the age. That's essentially the same thing. So the Jesus, the one who makes himself lowest of the low, 
will be exalted as the highest of the high. He's indispensable in the new creation as he is in the in creation, in creation, all things hold together in him. In the new creation, all things hold together in him. But it's a different terminology. He's the head. Not just in an authoritative sense over the church, but he's head in an organic sense. In, and that we, we all join together in, in Christ. As we speak the truth in love, Paul says, we grow to become the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. He's indispensable. He holds us together. And his universality, he's there in all places in the same way um, that he's through and above all creation. He is through and in amongst his church. And the plan is actually to reconcile to himself all things, all things through his blood shed on the cross. That's God's plan. Why does it matter? Mainly just want you to hear it and worship. A couple of things I think that Colossians might be tempted by, which maybe we can apply to ourselves. I think they're tempted by, by dualism. What we mean by that is that they think that anything is, is, is physical is evil and, and anything that is spiritual it is good. The spiritual is good and, and the uh, physical is evil, which, which leads to, to two kind of opposite errors. One is you can do what you like with your body. It doesn't really matter. And Paul has to speak to the Corinthians about that. He says, don't unite yourself with prostitutes. Um, or they go to the other extreme, which is they try and, um, uh, try and deny the body, try and get it under absolute, complete control by their own strength. And it's not there. It's not true. It's just not there in, in Christianity. Christ is the creator of everything physical uh, as well as spiritual. We're not trying to... Um, escape, the, escape the physical to, to go and be in the spiritual. And that is not God's plan for the future. And we've talked about that before. We said a couple of weeks ago, our, our future is here. Our heavenly future is here. It is on a, a renewed earth, on an earth, on an earth made new, in a new creation. We're not trying to escape this to float off into some spiritual existence where life will be easy. We're, we're, we're coming back. We'll be brought back to a new creation with, with, with everything made new. And for your salvation, Christ took on a physical body. There was no spiritual solution to this because it's not just about the spirit. It's about, it's about you, body, and spirit. They both need to be reconciled to God. Christ shed real physical blood for your reconciliation. This is not just a, a, a spiritual thing. This is a, this is a whole person, body and mind thing. You have been, um, you've been reconciled to God. You've been made free. You've been forgiven in, in, in body and mind. And so I think there's a, there's a call here to use your physical resources to honor and, and, and worship Jesus, the one who takes on flesh you to love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul and with all your mind but with all your with all your strength 
talked a couple of times uh, in recent weeks about the good works God has prepared in advance for you to do. When you're saved, you're, you're right with God by grace through faith. This not from yourself. It's the gift of God, not by works. You're not saved by works so that no one can boast. But then we are God's workmanship, created to him new creations to do good works, which he's prepared in advance for us to do if there is no bodily response to this bodily sacrifice of the one who made everything that is bodily and physical, then, then your Christian life is lacking. I think the other temptation is that they may be tempted by Gnosticism. So again, this, based on this same idea that the physical is bad and the spiritual is good. And so they had to kind of say, you can't get directly to God. There was kind of like a whole load of steps on a ladder. And in between that steps, there were a whole bunch of different angelic beings. And they got gradually more spiritual and gradually less physical. And Jesus must have been the kind of one on the bottom rung of the ladder because he was the most physical. No. Paul says there's no kind of great ladder, there's, there, there's no more than one step, there's no more than one mediator between you and God. There's only one person, and that is the man who is God, that is the God who is man, and that is Jesus Christ. He is the only mediator, there is no way around him. I'm tempted to say we can't go over him, we can't go under him, we have to go through him. Okay. I can see that resonates with some of you. <laughs> can't go over him, you can't go round him, can't go under him. You can only either ignore him in the words of that reading earlier on, turn you back to him, or, or you have to go through him. You have to go through him. And when you do, when you trust Christ, there is a physical payment made by him on the cross because your sins are physical sins in your body things you've done not just sins of mind and body Jesus died physically because there's going to be a physical hell there is going to be a bodily place of torment which we just don't even really want to mention but we have to and there is a physical uh, a physical death of Jesus because there is going to be a material, physical, new creation in which we can live. It requires a physical response. Not just a change of mind, which is repentance. Not just a, a trusting in Christ for forgiveness, which is uh, an invisible deal, isn't it? Not just a receiving of God's Holy Spirit to, to make you new and connect, connect you with him, which again is kind of an invisible thing, has to come out has to work out, come out in your body sooner or later. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, says James, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose that a brother or sister is without clothes or daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, provocatively, James says, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. This is our great God. This is Jesus. Isn't it amazing? Comes as this tiny baby. 
so that he can make a, a, a bodily human sacrifice on the cross for us. He, he's sovereign over creation. And he comes as a baby. Behoves us to, to respond with, with, with trust in him because what's at risk is, is, is salvation. Very briefly, what is past, Paul says, you are alienated from God. You are enemies in your mind and your behavior. What's, I wonder what your most powerful experience of, of alienation is. It's, it's an awful thing, isn't it? Don't know, whether you, don't know whether you can identify with that. If you're alienated from somebody or something, I've had some powerful experiences of that. Go back a long way. It's a dreadful thing. In the past, you were alienated from God because of your mind, because of your behavior. And ultimately, ultimately the, the, although there is a physical torment in hell, I think the most powerful torment will be this sense of being completely alienated. Um, completely on your own. Um, completely having nobody, nobody you can call on and nobody is going to come. And completely having no, no hope or sense that it will ever end. In the past, you're alienated. In the present, Paul said, you're reconciled by Christ's physical body. And in the future, you'll be presented. This is great, isn't it? You'll be presented holy, blemish-free, and accusation-free before God. But now he, God, has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish, and free from accusation. So it's like God, is, God has given Christ so that he can, he can pick you up. And who's, who's doing the presenting? It sounds to me like God is doing the presenting. Who's he presenting it to? He's presenting it to himself. And he says, here. Here is Nick. And he is holy. And he has, there are no spots, no blemishes. That there's no accusation that sticks to him. Here he is. Please, please take him and accept him. Because yes, of course. <laughs> and the same is, is, is true for you. He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you wholly in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Picks you up. Here is Vicky. Here is Sue, here's, here's Kevin. Here's Andy. And, and look, he's, he's holy and um, there's no blemish. And there's, there's no accusation and no accusation hanging over him. Will you have him? Yes. Yes. I'll have him. If. If you continue. Established and firm. Don't move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you've heard and that's been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a, a servant. If you continue. Paul says, don't move from your faith, move on in faith. 
Don't move from your faith. Move on in faith, continuing to trust that Jesus is the only way. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, please, please open our eyes to you. We sang the song. We want to see you. We want to, to see you high and lifted up, shining in, in the light of your glory. Please, Lord Jesus, open the eyes of our hearts so we, we, we see that bit more of you. And please do that in these next few weeks when, when we see you small. When we see you small, we pray those pictures will be bursting with these thoughts of, of your glory and your highness and your holiness. Please open the eyes of our heart.